Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 9. If you don't, it will be on the insert in your bulletin. In the middle of chapter 8, Jesus had asked the most important question that human beings must answer. A question about himself. Who do you say I am? The apostle Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter was right. But the rest of the chapter proves that even though Peter knew who Jesus was, he didn't understand the full implications of his identity. So he rebukes Jesus, Peter does, because immediately following this revelation that this is who Jesus is, Jesus began to teach that God's Messiah was going to be rejected and killed, but would rise again three days later. But Jesus knew why Peter rebuked him, which is precisely why Jesus begins to teach about the cost of following him, and identifying oneself with him in this world. Those who follow Jesus must die to themselves and their own agendas and their own autonomy and their own self-sufficiency every single day in order that they may follow Jesus on the same path that led to his death in this world. And that's the path of loving and pursuing sinners. The agenda of Jesus must become the agenda of all who would follow him in this world. So in just a few paragraphs now, the disciples have heard not only that the one they're following and believe is the Messiah will suffer and be rejected and killed, but also that if they want to truly be his disciples and follow him, they will have to take up their crosses also. Jesus knows their doubts. He knows their fears and their reservations as much as he knows ours this morning. Beloved, so God the Father does something to his Son for those disciples and for us by the Holy Spirit to remove their doubt. He does something that not only confirms for the disciples and reassures them that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Messiah, who is God's agent of salvation in this world, but also confirms that he will be vindicated and glorified following his suffering, which means they will And we will be also, beloved, because of who he is and what he accomplished, we must listen to Jesus as the authoritative voice in our lives above every other. Let's pray. Our Father, my Father, I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit for this task this morning, for this sermon, this message in this text. God, I ask for your power. I ask for clarity in my mind. I ask for humility, Lord, that I might not get in the way of this passage or its intent that your Holy Spirit breathed into it. And I ask, Father, that every person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would have their ears open to hear and to receive and to do this word. And I ask and pray this through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at the first part there of verse 2 in chapter 9. He writes, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So it's only been six days since the conversation we were reading about at the end of chapter 8. So not only is Mark making sure we link the events of chapter 8 directly with the event at the beginning of chapter 9, He may also be telling us that the choice of just three disciples, Peter, James, and John, fulfills the prediction that some of the disciples will experience the glory 
of the kingdom of God in this life, if even for a moment. So, as Jesus and his disciples move south back toward the Sea of Galilee, beginning the long journey to Jerusalem where the cross on which Jesus would die was waiting for him, we can imagine how filled with foreboding the disciples probably were. The terrible words of his suffering and death and of their need to take up their own crosses were probably front and center in their minds as Jesus led these three up a high mountain. Every time you see that word in the Gospels, remember, let your mind remember mountains in all of Scripture. All throughout Scripture, mountains were places of direct divine revelation from God. So let's look at what happened here at the beginning in the second part of verse 2. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them. But Jesus only the Greek word for transfigured here is a form of the word uh, of the verb metamorphio from, of course, uh, which we get the English word metamorphosis. That's the word we learned in school when we learned about the amazing changes a caterpillar went through in his cocoon to become a butterfly. Morphos in Greek is a change of form. So a transfiguration is literally a change of form. The prefix trans means over or across, right? A transatlantic flight goes across the Atlantic, a transcontinental flight, goes across the continent. When Jesus was transfigured for a moment, he underwent a literal transformation in front of them, a metamorphosis through which he was shown to his disciples for who he actually is. What was hidden and veiled underneath his humanity in this moment burst out and his full deity went on display to his disciples. Jesus was transfigured, right? The action happens To him. So this is not Jesus revealing himself on his own. This is a revelation of the Son by God the Father. Mark heard this account from the mouth of Peter himself when he wrote this gospel. Jesus' clothes became radiant in verse 3. And as only Mark tells us in his gospel, they were so intensely white that the brightness of them was unearthly. No launderer on earth could have achieved this level of whiteness. So On the Mount of Transfiguration, these three disciples witnessed with their eyes the actual glory of God. Not a reflected glory like the Israelites saw at Sinai on Moses' face. The source of the light the disciples saw was coming from within Jesus Christ himself. It was the Apostle John, one of these three, who would write later in his gospel, And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The author of Hebrews, as we just read, calls Jesus the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus doesn't just reflect the glory of God like Moses' face did. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God Itself, And there, as the glory of God is shining in the face of the person of Jesus in verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Mark is more concerned with how their presence confirms the identity of Jesus than 
Luke, when he records this account, who is also concerned about the content of their conversation. In Luke 9.31, he tells us that they were talking with Jesus about his departure, his exodus that would follow his death in Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah provide a unique continuity between the old and the new as they were also faithful servants of God that were rejected by the people but vindicated by God. They're perfect witnesses to his messianic authority and mission. You have Elijah, who represents the prophets. Moses, who represents the law. Not only did they clearly understand the Messiah's task, but as those representatives, their presence on the mountain signifies everything that has come before this moment in Israel's great history. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, then, of the Old Testament and the climax of of all salvation history. Jesus Christ is about to accomplish everything that Moses and all the prophets predicted. The self-revelation of God, His movement to reveal Himself in our world, reached its climax in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The disciples are so terrified in verse 6, they don't even know what to think. They really don't know what to say. This is the perfect moment for silence and awe, but Peter speaks up in verse 5. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter is talking about setting up three tents for these three men, but the strong implication of the wording is that he's basically just babbling. He he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't even know what to think. But maybe he says that because he's thinking that, hey, the gang's all here now. We have the best of the old, the best of the new, all of God's servants. Let's give them equal honor, build three tents, hear what all three have to say, then everything will make sense. Whatever Peter's reason for wanting to set up these three tents, Mark considers it totally irrelevant, as verse 7 makes clear. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. Now, if the disciples were terrified at the transfiguration of Jesus, that terror isn't going to lessen when they're overshadowed by a cloud and the very voice of God booms out of it saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Hear that on the heels of what Peter just said, by the way. Let's make three tents. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Matthew even tells us in 17.6 of his gospel that they fell on their faces And we're greatly afraid. Beloved, this isn't just any cloud. This is the glory cloud of the presence of God himself that we've seen before in Scripture. Now creating a shroud around Jesus and Elijah and Moses and the disciples. And it overshadowed them, the text says. That's the same word the angel Gabriel used in Luke 135. When he announced to Mary that she would be the mother of the Savior. And Mary asked how this was possible. He told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, because of that overshadowing also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So the idea of being overshadowed in this way is being overtaken by great power. And then you hear, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. At His baptism earlier in Mark 1. 9 through 11, God the Father audibly commended His Son when He was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now He commends Jesus specifically to these disciples who certainly need encouragement and assurance after what they've been hearing Jesus 
teach recently. They need the courage to take up their crosses and follow Him. How does God provide that? What does God do? And so this commendation of Jesus comes with an exhortation, a command. Listen to Him. In verse 7, God is answering the question in this part of Mark. Who do you say that I am? Who does God say that Jesus is? God says Jesus is His Son. Peter never forgot this moment, by the way. He wrote about it much later in his life to tell us what we're actually looking at here. In 2 Peter 1, 16-19, Peter wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received glory and honor from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with Him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Beloved, until that day, we must listen to Jesus above all others. The transfiguration of Jesus was the revelation of the glory of God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus is then the substance of the kingdom of God. That's why when Peter described it later in Second Peter, he's using all those Shekinah glory images, mountain and voice and cloud and glory God was revealing Himself. God could not have been more clear as to the identity of Jesus, and He could not have been more clear as to the supremacy of Jesus as the fullest revelation from God. This is the prophet of which Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15, the one to whom all must listen. And if this is true, if this really is the Messiah, although no one should lack certainty at this point, It means the suffering and death of which he's just told his disciples is not going to be the end of the story. His death is his exodus that leads to his glory that, by the way, will never end. So suffering and death are not incompatible with the glory of Jesus. They are intertwined with the glory of Jesus. And so, beloved, so is ours. So is our dying to ourselves. Remember, when we do this, we're not losing. We're gaining. But Peter was so confused. There's so much to grasp here. Imagine if you would have been standing there and this is where the rubber meets the road in this text for us this morning. Because by means of the Holy Spirit, we are all standing there. We're all witnessing this happen. We're all hearing God Speak from heaven. Beloved, it's going to become increasingly harder to pledge our allegiance solely to Jesus in our world. Storm clouds are gathering. I'm not a prophet in that. Everybody can see that. All over the world. Difficult days are ahead. They will come here. I know in West Virginia we're fortunately pretty isolated from a lot of things. It will find its way here. It'll find its way here. So how we define taking up our cross and following Him 
That's been very easy in America, relatively speaking. That's about to change. That's about to change. So we need this revelation. We need this text as much as they did. And we need it for the exact same reasons. Because Jesus has just told them, look, following me means dying in this world. Jesus never hid that from us. Ever. He never made it sound like if you do this, everything's going to go well. Everything in your life will come together. And you're going to live a very long, happy, wealthy life. Jesus never promised that. He promised the exact opposite. And he did it so clearly that it's a surprise to us when we hear it. Isn't that ironic? It's so clear in Scripture to expect this as followers of Jesus. And when we hear it, it's like we don't even know how to relate to it. So we say silly things about God in the Bible like Peter did. We don't even know what we're looking at sometimes, what we're beholding. And we believe all these superstitious, goofy, crazy things. We wait to hear new things from God when God has spoken finally in His Son. You want to hear God speak? Listen to Jesus. Will we listen to Jesus? That's the question the text is asking us this morning. These disciples, will you listen to Him? Peter, James, and John, along with the rest of Israel, had been listening to Moses and the law and the prophets for 2,000 years. Jesus, even though He's unique is a part of that plan. He's not a break from it. And so you can understand in some sense Peter saying, well, yeah, let's make three tents. Again, the, the gang's all here. We have everybody. It's a new trinity, if you will. Moses and Elijah. So you have the law, you have the prophets, and now you have Jesus, and now you have grace thrown into that too. But the text here, and especially in Luke, clearly says Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He doesn't know what he's saying. Beloved, don't try to mix these three things as though they're all equal. Law, prophets, Jesus. Jesus is superior. So we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament and the revelation Jesus has brought to bear on all of God's truth, beloved. In fact, while Peter's speaking, that Old Testament cloud that signified the majestic presence of God appeared and overshadowed all of them and they got afraid. And then again, the voice comes in verse seven from the cloud, the voice of the one true and living God himself. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the next thing you see in verse eight, when they look, Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus stands alone in front of them. That's the one to whom they must listen. It's no longer Moses and the law that are the authoritative voices over their lives. It's no longer the Old Testament prophets who proclaim their destiny. No, no, no. Jesus stands alone over them, front and center. And the voice of God that took the other two away tells them to listen to him. It's not that those two are voided out or that the law and the prophets are now voided out. It's that their task and their words find their meaning and their fulfillment and their climax in Jesus, who is now the focal point of God's revelation through which we understand all of God's revelation, that which came before him, that which came in him and after him. So the blazing white clothes, the Shekinah glory cloud that envelops Jesus and his disciples, the thundering voice of God, it's another grand and glorious moment like we saw on Mount Sinai, but there's a shift this time. A shift from Moses and the prophets to Jesus 
as the new one to whom we must listen. There is no more clear-cut proof about who Jesus is and the authority He is to be given in their lives or in the Scripture than the voice of God Himself telling us, listen to Him. If anybody in Mark's audience was thinking of hanging on to Moses and Elijah as the authoritative voices in the life of their congregation, that's being shattered here. By way of the transfiguration, the text moves from the question, who is this, to the answer with God himself coming out as the ultimate witness of the identity of Jesus. And so we must not only hear and understand the words of Jesus, we must do them. That's what it means to listen to him. This is what they needed to know the most and what we need to know the most now in the context of a suffering Messiah and its implications for following him. The one who has called us to die is the one to whom we must listen above all others every single day. The cloud of God's glory overshadows those who would relegate Jesus' voice to the same level as other voices in our lives. You don't just add Jesus on. Jesus takes everything away and becomes the center of my life and the only voice to whom I must listen. And we relegate Jesus all the time as we interpret Scripture. We try to let three voices tell us how to live. Law, prophets, Jesus. Beloved, the law and prophets are meant to be interpreted and understood through Jesus alone. Why? Because He is the beloved Son. He's the one God has been promising to send since Genesis and planned on sending before the foundation of the world. He is the beloved Son. The other two voices find their fulfillment, their meaning in Him. So to Him we must listen, even when we're reading them. The sudden disappearance of Moses and Elijah here has very powerful implications. For one, it confirms the just the miraculous nature of the event. You have a cloud. One minute these two men are there. The next moment they're gone. It confirms the preeminence of Jesus. The vision is obviously about Him, not the other two. He is the Son. To him we must listen. And thirdly, the prior revelation of God through Moses and Elijah and the prophets is superseded by the new revelation, revelation given through King Jesus. It's to him they must listen. The kingdom of God is at hand, remember? And Jesus has already said in Mark that the new wine of the kingdom cannot be placed into the old wineskins of the old covenant. God is doing something new. So as the vision on the mountain fades and Moses and Elijah disappear and Jesus is left alone, we find now that the fate of our world rests on his shoulders and on his shoulders alone. Everything that came before was preparation for his coming and the salvation that he would accomplish. The superiority of the new to the old, if you remember, is the central theme of the book of Hebrews. We read it this morning. Again, the writer begins in Hebrews 1-2 by clarifying that Everything God spoke through the prophets in the past was partial and preparatory. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is far greater than any who have come before him to the point that he supersedes them as authoritative in our lives. In the rest of those verses in 2 through 4 in Hebrews 1, he's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the heir of the universe who provided purification for sins. History has its culmination in him. To whom else are we going to listen? 
to shape our lives for us. Pick it up in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. They listened this time, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus commanded these three disciples to keep their newfound knowledge about him to themselves. So apparently they couldn't even tell the other disciples until after Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't really understand what Jesus meant by rising from the dead, partly because the Jewish people expected a general resurrection at the end of history, not a specific resurrection within history. So, so for them, for much of Israel, if you can picture, maybe I've used this example before, a picture before. If you can picture, if you've ever been driving towards a mountain range, when you're very far away from it, all those mountains look like they're stacked right on top of each other, right? Then when you get up to it and you're actually driving through the mountains, you realize that there's tons of distance between them, right? That's how the old covenant Jewish person would have seen all the talk about the end and the fulfillment or the Messiah coming, I should say. They saw all the mountains put together. So when Jesus starts talking like these events are very far apart, they don't know what to make of them, generally speaking. Verse 9 is the only time we hear Jesus put an end point on this messianic secret, if you will, where he keeps telling people to be quiet. Verse 9, he's telling you that time is going to end and who he is will be proclaimed from the mountaintops. But for now, he wants to prevent a premature proclamation of his messiahship until he's completed the task of dying, which has just become very apparent that even his disciples would force upon him if they could when Peter rebuked him after he said that the Son of Man must suffer and die. The glory of his reign that these three just saw on the mountain is not going to be realized at his first entrance into Jerusalem, but only after his suffering and death and resurrection. And ultimately, when he comes again to judge and to save, this revelation is what brings up the conversation about Elijah's place then in all of this. In Malachi 4.1, it was prophesied that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So if Jesus was in the process of inaugurating the kingdom of God and ushering in that day, where do the prophecies about Elijah's coming fit in since it deemed that with Elijah's coming or seemed that with Elijah's coming, the kingdom was going to arrive at that moment in all its glory. But if Jesus, the Messiah, is going to suffer and die, how can Elijah's coming be understood properly as the ushering in or as the event that happens right before the ushering in of the kingdom? In Jesus' response to their question in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us that Jesus affirmed that Elijah had in fact already come in the person of John the Baptist. He was not Elijah himself, risen from the dead, but he ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, a very good example of how prophecy often can't be read literally, but must be understood in light of all of God's revelation in Jesus. But notice... When the disciples ask about the restoration of all things through Elijah, Jesus redirects them to the suffering of the Messiah in verse 12 and of John the Baptist in verse 13. God's prophets, even the Son of Man himself, are treated with contempt in this world. Elijah has come, Jesus says. 
That text has been fulfilled. And they did whatever they pleased to him. They didn't help usher in the kingdom. Herod had John the Baptist mercilessly beheaded in prison. Jesus is telling them here, do not think that suffering and death are incompatible with the kingdom. Don't think they mean I've not been sent from God as the anointed one. Don't think the kingdom isn't here because the Messiah must first suffer and die. The restoration predicted from Elijah will be accomplished through Christ's suffering and death, not around it or without it. So the opposition to Jesus and his death on the cross is not a surprise to God. It's not a setback in his plan. All along it's been his purpose to accomplish redemption and accomplish glory. Most of us know how this story goes from here for these disciples. And in light of what they've just seen, we are left wondering again how one could possibly doubt Jesus after seeing what the three of them saw and heard on that mountain. Peter is still going to deny that he knows Jesus three times the night before he's murdered. All the disciples, including James and John, who were on this mountain, in Gethsemane will forsake Jesus and flee when they come to arrest Him. Beloved, how fragile is our faith? How deep is our need for the ongoing touch of Jesus on our eyes so that we can see, regardless of what we've already seen, regardless of what we think we know, how desperate are we for the touch of Jesus. I just want to ask one question this morning to help us think through properly applying this text to our lives. What are the authoritative voices in your lives? Let me ask it another way. What are the voices that you let shape your life and your worldview and your thinking? We're all listening to something. Right? And we all have substitutes for Jesus. Maybe some in Mark's audience had been thinking just like Peter might have been thinking in that moment. Well, they see Moses and Elijah show up in that text and they're like, yes, let's build them three tents basically in our congregation. They're the rock stars from the old era, or two of them anyway. We don't want Jesus alone really, that's too much. But if you mix him with some law and some Old Testament glory, we'll accept that. We can track with that. Would the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in this moment... Or the absolute life-shaping authority he obviously means to have over us that's so evident here in verse 7. Allow us to think for one second that Jesus is going to share his glory or his influence over us with anyone or anything. What do you put next to him and let shape your life? What do you believe in and love that you are as adamant about as you are about listening to Jesus. And beloved, please don't think you don't have voices like that in your life. We all do. We all do. We're all listening to something. What kind of authority would you think one like this deserves to have in our lives? Just take this text... It's revelation of who Jesus is and what God says about him. And then hold that up. And then next to it, hold up the people or person or things or songs or books or movies or artists or vloggers or influences, influencers that you listen to. 
and see if they compare. And when you realize that they don't compare, ask yourselves why you give them such authority to speak over and into your life and shape your worldview and your thinking. Why? Why not just this one? We're all trying to find a way to fit other things in to the place only Jesus should have. And beloved, Jesus has just made clear it will not work. And God is trying to reaffirm this when he says, listen to him. I know he just told you, you must take up your cross and die. Listen to him. He's not lying. Right? God is telling us, Jesus is telling us the truth. Listen to him. Every other voice in this world tells you to save you, to keep you, to perpetuate you. Jesus says, lose you. The only way to understand texts like 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul says crazy things like, let him who has a wife live as though he has none. Well, but you said, lover as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is a love that is only evidenced by dying. By dying. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church is dying to yourself. Following anything Christ commanded is dying to ourselves. I think if it's easy to follow Jesus, we're not listening. And I don't, you say, Tony, you you talk about grace so much. Now are you going back on that and saying, no, 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 beloved, no, no, no. The grace is so good. This message is so good. We got to give our lives to proclaiming it. We pray for unreached peoples. We pray for the nations. We'll never stop doing that. But beloved, don't ever forget when we do that that we are as indebted to the people across the street with his news as we are to the nations. So you said that last week. I'm probably going to say it next week too. We, we give so many voices the place that only Jesus' voice should have in our lives. We give so many things just as much sway. We even give our own voices and our own experiences priority over Jesus and the Scriptures when they conflict, don't we? I know the Bible says that, but I've just experienced this. Who are you going to listen to? Jesus or yourself? Those are our options. Jesus or me? Beloved, listen to Him. Listen to Him. Often we think, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter. what I know what Jesus commands, but we're suppressing that because we want A, we want B, we want C, right? So we're trying to find out, how do I follow Jesus but still get what I want? It's not that everything we want is bad. That's the thing. It's that everything we want that isn't Jesus isn't Jesus. That's where the dying comes in. If, if all Jesus was here for was to help you realize your purpose and, and, and realize all your dreams and get everything you want, what he just said makes zero sense. 
That wouldn't mean dying to myself. That would mean finally living to myself. Thank you, Jesus, for getting on my team and helping the rest of the world realize that the sun revolves around me. How do you think you accomplish that for everybody? Right? If, if the point of Jesus is to make the world revolve around you, then it can't revolve around anyone else. So who wins? Well, Jesus does. Jesus does, because it all revolves around him. There's a reason God set it up so that the sun doesn't revolve around us, beloved. We let the voices of politicians, ones that we like and ones that we don't, we let their voices shape our lives, shape our confidence, shape our hope, shape our joy based on what they say. So we're like this. We're like this all the time. Why? Because other voices get to shape our worldview. We listen to politicians. We listen to musicians. It's very easy to do because the gift of music that God has given to the world is one of the most beautiful gifts He's ever given. So lyrics can have a powerful effect on people, even when they're not written in a Godward manner. They can have a powerful effect on people. Musicians. We listen to actors. We listen to authors. Again, we listen to the voices of the media. We listen now to people on Facebook. We listen to the Internet. And then, of course, there's the ever-authoritative voice of the law in our lives telling us, do better, do more, please God, win at life. Those are all commands. We can't do them. The purpose of the law is to push us to Christ, not to make it so we don't need Him anymore. We need Jesus. Coming down off this mountain is the only one that should be my authoritative voice. And especially in light of the fact that he died for me. The work of salvation, Luke tells us, he was discussing with Moses and Elijah. His departure, which would come by means of his death. But we don't want that to be the, vo the only voice shaping our lives. The voice that said, die we want to say, that's Peter, back there in chapter 8, verse 32, rebuking Jesus. We aren't satisfied with what He's called us to in His Word. Maybe we aren't even satisfied with Him. So we listen to ourselves. We listen to our own reasons and justifications and rationalizations. That, that's why you, the, the, the preacher can talk and it just goes in one ear and out the other. And the reality of Science that you probably are catching about five minutes of what I'm going to say this morning. It's not your fault. You're not sinning. I'm probably rambling and the mind isn't going to grasp it. So we, we, we give the law, we give people, music, movies, politicians. Again. We give these things the place only Jesus should have in our lives. Only Jesus should be granted the responsibility of providing me with joy. Because He is an ever-flowing fountain that never runs dry. You and I are broken cisterns that can't really hold any water. So if we're using each other to suck joy from me out of one another, what, what's going to end up happening? Disillusion, disillusionment, disappointment, hatred, frustration. Right? You ever say that to somebody, you make me so happy. Oh, for now, right? You ever had a great date with your spouse? 
And then you, you, you argue on the way home? Right? Right? You ever, you ever have these, these huge high aspirations for your kids and they don't fulfill them? I'm not talking about my kids, I'm talking in general, right? I'm beloved, nobody in this world including our spouses or our children or our brothers and sisters in Christ, is meant to have the place that Jesus has in my life. And all of us would say that. But yet we're conflicted and fearful and frustrated and angry and upset and on edge and terrified about the direction of the country. Do we think Jesus didn't know about these days? Beloved, do you think he quit being the ruler of kings on earth? You think he doesn't hold Joe Biden in his hand? Think he didn't hold Donald Trump in his hand? You think he doesn't hold Kim Jong-un or whoever else in his hand? This is God's world. This is God's world. He provided us with so great a Savior so that we don't have to be afraid and conflicted and angry and frustrated and burnt out because we can't find joy. We can't find any lasting peace. Nobody really loves us. Nobody's really kind to us. Nobody really wants what's best for us. They want what's best for them. And we all know it. And Jesus is standing over us. God the Father is saying, listen to the one who tells you to die every day that has died for you, risen for you intercedes for you, is reigning for you. Listen to Him. He's got you. You'll be safe. It doesn't matter what rights they take away. You proclaim my name. I have your soul. Stop being so afraid. I'm with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hands. Stop listening to other people. Beloved, the one who died for us and rose again for us and ascended back to the Father to intercede for us and reign over us is the only voice that should be informing our lives. What we need to walk away from this text doing is asking for His grace to listen to His voice above all others. We can't do that. Our natures don't want to do that. Because of who He is, though, and what He's accomplished, we must listen to Jesus as the authoritative voice in our lives above every other. What voices are taking the place of His in your life? Who are you listening to? Who decides on a daily basis whether or not you have joy? Who decides on a daily basis whether or not you're stable? Who decides on a daily basis whether or not You should take your own life. Because it can get that bad. And if you're there, please don't do that. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. Stop listening to yourself. Talk to yourself. Tell your soul. No, no, Jesus is enough. Shh. Jesus is enough. Remember the scripture. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. 
And you and I will do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns. And the morning star rises. In our hearts. It is on our knees in prayer. In his word. That we will find the bread that gives life. And the well that never runs dry. He died for you. It is finished for you. He reigns and he reigns for you. Listen to him. Listen to him.